Our scripture is taken from Malachi, that's the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, 1 through 11. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob. And I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, They shall build, but I will throw down, and they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Saith the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name. And ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar, and ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, The table of the Lord is contemptible. And if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, is, not, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person, saith the Lord of hosts? And now I pray you... Beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your persons, saith the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught? Neither do you kindle fire on mine altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. May God add his blessing to this, the reading and hearing of his words. We are in our series on the minor prophets, and tonight we are looking at Malachi. And we will take several weeks to cover Malachi, but we'll cover most of it tonight. Malachi means my messenger, and there's a historic question as to whether this was really a man's name or whether it's the designation of what he actually was, the messenger of God. It's very possible that it is both, that Malachi was actually his name, and of course he was the messenger of God. The time of his writing was after the return from exile in Babylon. You remember that for their sins, the uh, southern kingdom was sent into exile for 70 years, and then they were led back out by Ezra, and they rebuilt a temple, and this is where, of course, Haggai and Zechariah came in to support in this work. And then uh, the walls were not rebuilt, and uh, they were at the mercy of their enemies. 
And finally, some 100 years after they had returned, God raised up Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer in uh, the court of the Persian king, to come and to rebuild the walls. And uh, apparently, Malachi labored at this time. Uh, he was a contemporary of Nehemiah, which would place him around 424 B.C. What is his message? Well, we suggested uh, in our title that uh, Malachi was one of these men who we know nothing else about, uh, something like Elijah. They just suddenly appear on the scene. God has raised him up, and he tells it like it is. He comes forward, and he just calls a spade a spade right down the line as far as the people's honest relation with God is concerned. It's something of a dialogue uh, carried on where the people have certain charges against God and God has certain charges against the people. Actually, God's charges against the people include their charges against him. He says, now let's just get it out in the open, what you really think of me and how you really talk about me and how you really regard me. And then I'm just going to get it out in the open how I feel about you and we're just going to lay our cards on the table and we're going to tell it like it is. First, uh, their charges uh, toward God, how they really feel about God and his dealings with them. And uh, the first charge against God is that he hasn't loved them. Uh, this is brought out in the second verse of the first chapter. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? You don't believe that I've loved you. You question my love for you. Uh, why would they question his love? What was the root of their problem? Well, they had uh, something of a twofold root. One was they had a materialistic outlook. God doesn't love us because we're not rich. God doesn't love us because we've got problems. If God really loved us, we would have material prosperity. We don't have it. God doesn't love us. That's one root of their problem. Uh, they didn't count the spiritual blessing. The second root of their problem is a penny-in-the-slot concept of Christianity. God, I went to church this morning. That means that you're obligated to bless my business this week. And God, you didn't bless my business this week. You didn't keep your side of the bargain, God. I was in church. I sang. I gave some money. I put my penny in the slot. Nothing came out. God refutes uh, their accusation. And he refutes it like this. He says, you think I don't love you? I tell you what. Compare yourself with your brother. Look at your nation of Edom. Uh, you remember that Edom descended from Esau. They were the people that came from Esau, who was Jacob's brother. Uh, Israel has descended from Jacob. Edom has descended uh, from Esau. He says, let's look back at uh, these two brothers and how I dealt with you who descended from Jacob versus how I dealt with those who descended from Esau. Edom, uh, you remember 
they thought that they would improve their lot, but I overthrew them. And they thought they would rebuild, but I've torn it down. As a matter of fact, I just wiped them out. But I didn't wipe you out. Oh, I punished you. I sent you into captivity, but I didn't wipe you out. What I did toward you, I did in love. What I did toward them, I did in retribution for their sins and uh, indignation and wrath. Consider the treatment you've received and then say that I haven't loved you. In other words, you could turn it around and we could say, does God love America? Has God blessed the American people? We might say, well, no, look at all the trouble we've got. Well, let's compare our trouble with the trouble in Nigeria, where the babies are starving to death. Or the trouble in China, where the people live under communism. Let's compare our nation with any other nation in the world, and there's none other nation in the world that's had the blessings that our nation has had. Now, where did those blessings come from? From the ability of the white race? Well, there are white races elsewhere. From the natural resources of the land? Well, they're natural resources uh, of an even greater nature in other countries. Where did uh, these privileges come from? Why is our nation a free nation? You say, well, we fought the British and we won our independence, did we? You go back and read the history of that battle and find out who fought the British. God fought the British. We were goners. Any number of times we were goners, and God stepped in. And there was one occasion when Washington's troops were ahead, and uh, the British commander uh, simply decided to wait till morning to finish them off. He had them trapped, their backs up against the Delaware River, nowhere they could go. Uh, the mud had bogged down their cannon. They couldn't move their cannon. And the British simply would move in the next morning and wipe them out. They couldn't move because of the mud. And then long about 3 a.m. in the morning, the wind shifted. And a cold wind came down suddenly and froze that muddy earth. And Washington moved his troops out within a half an hour over the icy roads, hard, frozen hard. Washington knew who won the battle. God blessed our nation. And there's many, many evidences of it. And this is what he's saying to them. Compare uh, your history with the way God has dealt, and you'll see that I have loved you. What nation has had the light of the gospel that our nation has had? And all of this an indication of God's blessing. It's not deserved. He says, uh, was not Edom, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Uh, here are two brothers. Uh, was one better than the other? Uh, not necessarily at all. Well, then why the difference in the blessing? Well, I chose to bless Jacob. You remember the point of this that Paul makes over in Romans 9, that before the children had done anything, before they were even born, having done neither good nor evil, it was said to the mother, the elder shall serve the younger. God's chosen to bless the younger 
he'll be the privileged one. Paul said, uh, you know what that blessing really meant? It really meant the blessing of salvation would come to him and to those who would descend through him. Spiritual blessings are the real blessings, and you've been tremendously blessed. God refutes it in that way, that I have dealt with you in love, I have given you fantastic spiritual blessings, and you did not deserve a thing. An insensibility to God's love, an insensibility to their own guilt, led to these charges against God. That's not the only charge they make against God. They make another charge. They say that God's God's not really righteous. In the 17th verse of the second chapter, Ye have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, Wherein have we wearied him? When ye say, Every one that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them, or where is the God of judgment? In other words, they say, uh, We put our penny in the slot, and God didn't bless us. We were in church, and God didn't bless us. And God uh, has let these other people go on in their sins, and he hasn't punished them. And it can only mean one of two things. Either God loves evil, or uh, God is just simply not going to deal with sin. There's no providence, or there's no righteousness. They make this type of charge. And the answer that's given is... I'm not indifferent to sin, and I'm not under any obligation to prosper you for your penny-in-the-slot concept of what I'm supposed to do. You come and you go through some formality, and you think that's worship. He says, oh, no. And he says, I know you desire. You desire the Messiah to come, that I would send my messenger, this great prince that I promised, that uh, he will come, he says in verse 1 of chapter 3, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And very possibly here the messenger is not the Messiah, but the one who would precede the Messiah, John the Baptist, as mentioned a little further on in the book. But he will come himself. The Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, two messengers here, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. You desire the coming of this great prince. You want him to come so he'll straighten out everything that's wrong and he'll reward you and he'll punish the evildoers. That's your great longing. (laughs) Well, he's coming. I'm going to send him. But it isn't going to be like you think. Because when he comes, you're going to be the one he deals with. Verse 2. Who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like full of soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. He says, your desire about his coming, well, it will be fulfilled, but not in the way you anticipated. And then he says, the delay 
the delay is not due to any laxity or indifference to sin on my part. I'm giving you time to turn. If I was to come right now, you'd be consumed. In verse 6 of chapter 3, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Or as it's put over in Second Peter in the New Testament, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness. But he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why God delays. One day he will step in. He will banish evil from his universe. And maybe you'll be banished. Are you ready for his coming? Uh, then uh, he turns it around and he gives the charges that he has against them. He's answered their charges against him. He does love them. He's proven his love by disciplining them. He does care about sin. His delay is simply to give them time to turn before he sends his Savior. And there the Savior's ministry is viewed from the cradle to the throne of judgment as a whole. That's why it speaks of him coming in judgment. His first charge against them is a charge against the nature of their worship. As he says in the first chapter and the seventh verse, ye offer polluted bread upon my altar. Now this charge is made primarily to the priests. And apparently Malachi's primary ministry was to the preachers of the day. And I wish God would raise up one today. But Malachi, in speaking to the priests, is also speaking to you and me. We are all priests if we are Christians. We believe in the priesthood of believers today. And he says about the quality of worship that uh, it's shoddy. He says that their quality is lacking. Uh, you offer him the leftovers. You say that the table of the Lord is contemptible. It's not worth giving your best to him. If you offer the blind for sacrifice, is not this evil? You remember they were to bring their best and offer it to the Lord. Their lamb without spot or blemish. And here they bring the blind and the lame and the sick. We give the Lord our leftovers of our time, of our money, of our efforts. The Sunday school teacher, after all, I mean, she was at a party Saturday night and she didn't get in until 2 and, and uh, she just didn't have time to prepare and so she offered the Lord that half an hour between uh, 8 o'clock on Sunday morning and 8.30 that she could prepare and she just really didn't have time, you see. This type thing, the quality of our service, of our offering. And second, the... Uh, mercenary aspect of our service. As he says in verse 10, Who is there even among you that would shut the doors for naught, neither do ye kindle fire on my altar for naught? Which one of you will serve the Lord and not expect any recompense at all except just from him in terms of you know that it's well-pleasing to him. 
not expect any amazing blessing to drop down from heaven, not expect anybody to recognize the work that you've done, to write you a letter each week, to pat you on the back and tell you what a great job you've done, not expect anything except just the inner satisfaction of you doing what God wants you to do. Where's the person that'll serve me like that, says the Lord? Not a one of them. Then uh, he goes on to speak of the grudging attitude of their offerings to him. As he says in the 13th verse of that first chapter, he said also, Behold, what a weariness it is. Come on, we've got to go to evening service. I've been elected an officer. Our son's reaching teenage. We better get him over there before he gets in trouble. What a weariness. I better tithe. If I don't tithe, I might go broke. <laughs> Wish I didn't have to do it, but it's good insurance. And then he charges them with hypocrisy and the whole thing in verse 14. But cursed be the deceiver which hath in his flock a male, and boweth, and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. You bring and you say, boy, I really dug deep, and I'm just giving all I can give, and uh, let's pray that somebody else will come in and give some. And, and uh, the reason I can't give more, of course, is I bought a new boat. And, uh, you know, the hypocrisy involved in it. <clears throat> That's one aspect of his charge, and he contrast that type of service with the type that that the real minister of God should show forth and he uses here uh, the ideal uh, of the priest as spelled out in the law in the Old Testament as he says in the second chapter in verse uh, 6 Speaking of Levi, the first priest in a sense, the law of truth is in his mouth and iniquity was not found in his lips. This priest, and don't remove it from yourself, this man spoke the truth. He did not speak iniquity. He walked with me in peace and honesty and he did turn many away from iniquity. The quality of his life his walk with me produced power that affected other lives. Uh, for the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law in his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. What a solemn responsibility it is to know the Lord Jesus and to know the truth and to be a priest to your fellow man in the sense of the one that God will use to bring truth to him and to bring this man to himself. The contrast between the way the true priest handled things and the way they were handling. And then he has another charge against the people, and this charge has to do with sins in the marriage relation. In the second chapter and the tenth verse, Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? 
And here he's not speaking of the universal fatherhood of God, that all men have God as their father. The scriptures don't teach that. The scriptures teach that God is a father to his spiritual family. And it's his spiritual family that he's speaking of here. We become children of God by faith in Jesus Christ, we're told in Galatians 6. And here he's speaking of the covenant family, that God's people are a family, those who believe in his Son. And he says, God has made us one. And the purpose of this oneness he brings out in the 15th verse. Did not he make one? Wherefore one? Why did he make us into one family like this? That he might seek a godly seed. Why did God call out this nation of Israel and make them his own chosen people because, and make such strict rules about the division between them and the other nations. He did it because he wanted a people for himself that he could use as a repository of truth, that he could give the truth to this group of people in terms of the prophets and the scriptures, and the truth would be preserved from error there and passed on, that he might have a people because he'll never have a people if people don't know the truth. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Then there'll be no word of God if it's not preserved in this way. If there's simply a mixture among the other heathen nations who worship false gods, soon the truth will be lost. You remember what happened when Ahab was king and Jezebel, who was the uh, priestess of uh, a false god, was married to the king of Israel and the corruption that came in. And soon the people didn't know whether Baal was God or the Lord was God. And Elijah gathers them and he says, How long halt you between two opinions? You're not sure who is the Lord. Well, let's prove who is the Lord. And the Lord separated them out in order that he might have children raised in the truth. And then their hearts would be turned toward him. They would be regenerated. They would know the truth, and the truth would set them free. The purpose of the oneness was that God might have a people. And so the greatness of a sin in the marriage relation, anything that broke down this oneness, was that it destroyed and defeated the purpose of God in the establishment of his own people. It corrupted the whole program to do anything that would break down this oneness, profane this oneness, would destroy the purpose. And they were profaning the oneness. They were doing it in two ways. They were marrying outside the family, outside the covenant family, outside the people of God. He says in verse 11, Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. Daughters of strange God, women who worship false gods, married unbelievers, married a non-Christian. Any of that going on between a Christian and non-Christian today? I am appalled. I am appalled at the 
youngsters who come to me and they want me to marry them and many, many times it would involve a Christian and a non-Christian. And somehow this whole concept of God's intention that the Christian is not to marry the non-Christian is spelled out in Scripture, in the New Testament as well, is lost or is disobeyed willfully. One of our men went up and uh, gave something of a little exam to a group of people in a church in Winfield, and he said uh, to this group of young people, I want you to list the qualities that you're looking for in a husband. And uh, maybe 5% listed anywhere up towards the top, did he be a Christian? They just didn't think in those terms. They wanted him to be rich and handsome. But nobody thought about him being a Christian. The profaning is not only done in terms of marrying outside the family, but in terms of violation of the marriage contract, marriage contract within the family. In the fifteenth uh, verse, the last half of it of that second chapter. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. He hateth divorce. In the New Testament there are certain conditions of divorce which are recognized. But divorce, in the long run, destroys this whole purpose of God to raise a godly seed. What happens if you've got two people and, and they've got two Christians and they get a divorce? What happens to the children? Does this help the children in their Christian faith at all? Or does it ultimately probably uh, wreak havoc with God's purpose? And so uh, the Lord warns about that and he says he is a witness against this. And he warns of the punishment involved. As it says in verse 12, the Lord will cut off the man that doeth this. Now, that's strong language, and I, I don't urge it home in, in terms of if a person married outside the family relation, the Christian family relation, that uh, they immediately are lost. That's not so, but this is very strong language of warning about you cannot expect God's blessing on that marriage or on your actions, if you violate his precepts here. Malachi tells it like it is. These things present in the church today, present here, you find it maybe a weariness. We have the Lord's Supper and we run 15 minutes over. Is that a weariness? Uh, Lord, I'm going to be late to Britlands. Do you find that you question the Lord's love when you got some trouble and you put your penny in the slot and he didn't answer? Hmm? The Lord doesn't love me. Look what he let happen. And I put my penny in. I was in church. I even went to the committee meeting. Uh, what about uh, God's delay in not punishing sin? Has it led you to think that God is indifferent to sin and that you can go on in sin? and expect not to be dealt with sternly? Has it led some of you youngsters to feel that way? It led me to feel that way for years. I did some sins and nothing happened. And I thought, well, it's, it's a risk, but it's worth it. 
Well, it's not. It's folly, and it's not worth it. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And there we faced up to the fact that the great need in worship is reality, that from the heart we do these things. It's not a penny in the slot. We don't do it with any real sense of reimbursement that I'll do this much if God will do this much. But out of gratitude for the spiritual blessings he's given me, that I'm rich in him if I never had another penny. What he's done for me, and just let me be here in the United States of America, not to mention to be in his son, that I just serve him out of love. If no one ever patted me on the back and said, you're doing a good job, that I just want to do that. I kind of hope nobody would pat me on the back, maybe. Because, you know, if you receive your blessing from men and your recognition from them, well, you lose it from the Lord, in a sense. You have your reward. And, of course, the final thing that comes through is the object of the family relation is that we would raise a seed to serve him. The whole object of a church is that we raise a people to serve God who created them, return unto him that which is his rightful due. And our whole purpose of marriage would be, in a sense, that we raise children who will serve the Lord from early childhood. What about you? Have you... Got any of these things out of place? Have you really committed your life to Christ in sincerity? Do you realize his love as expressed in Jesus Christ and greater love hath no man than that? Have you received that person, Jesus Christ, and committed your life in sincerity to him, realizing that God's not at all indifferent to sin and that he will deal with it? And when he does, you will not be able to stand if you're not in Christ Jesus I urge you to stay tonight and to talk with me about this if you've never really uh, dealt with these things or if you'd like to just talk about any aspect of it.